they wouldn't have really or, or wouldn't have known the history as well as certainly many of the other Jewish uh, towns that churches were planted in. But one of the reasons that Paul does that is he's trying to show them there's no divide anymore between Jew and, and Greek. There's no kind of belief that somehow they're outside of the family of God, but now actually the church becomes this, this multi-ethnic, multinational, worldwide movement of people, and each one are, are in God's family. And so he, he unites them together in that, but he also reminds them, because of the history, that look, just because you're part of God's family doesn't mean that you're immediately good and that you can rest on that, is that we have to learn from uh, what is written before us. And, and I wrote this in my notes, but I forgot to say it uh, last week, is that history is, or should be anyway, a valuable teacher. And, and we live now in a time where it's popular to talk about erasing our history or, or even trying to rewrite it and pretend like things didn't happen that happened. But of course, the danger with that is, is if we don't know our history and we don't learn about the horrible mistakes and the things that happened, it can be very easy to repeat those same mistakes. It can be very easy to not learn from what has happened before us. And, and, you know, the reality um, of being a, perhaps if this is you, if you're a younger uh, sibling and you have an older sibling, right, is sometimes we were smart enough that we learned from seeing older siblings make mistakes and the consequences that happened and we went, man, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to be, that's not going to happen to me because I'm, I don't want to go down that road. Uh, and yet sometimes we were not smart enough and we probably said those things but then did those things anyway. And I think for us to remember, we, we should constantly uh, be looking at the reality that we need to learn from history. And so we can't erase it. And so Paul's been reminding them, look, look what happened to the Jewish nation. Look what happened. They, they made horrible mistakes. And with those mistakes came huge consequences to the point where he says, look, the, the entire nation saved two people. Joshua and Caleb, the entire nation of them who were brought up out of Egypt ended up dying in the wilderness because, uh, because of the mistakes that they made over and over, the idolatry, the lack of trust, the complaining, the disobedience, uh, etc. that happens. And so, Paul reminded them, here's the reality. Learn from these things. Uh, and then I spent a, a, a big rabbit trail on verse 13, and I could do it again this morning, so uh, I'm not going to. You don't have to worry, Uh, but if you missed it, verse 13 is this very misquoted and misinterpreted verse um, where people start to put the onus on themselves and say, don't worry, God will never give you anything that you can't handle, but the text actually is talking about how it's, it's an issue of temptation. And, and the issue, and Paul gives them the history lesson to say, look, look at their awful mistakes. Look at what they did. They tried to trust in themselves instead of God, and, and look where it got them. And so Paul warns them that, you know what, you are no different. But, but he gives this encouragement in verse 13, that God will not put you in a situation where the only response that you can have is sin. God will not lead you to a place where you have to sin, but he will provide a way out from it. So it's not that God won't give you what you can't handle. I think God gives us all kinds of things we can't handle because we forget how much we need him. 
And then we need to be reminded of that. And when we're reminded of that, it's because we're saying prayers like this, God, I don't know what to do. Or I don't know how to get out of this situation. Or I don't know how I should respond. This is too much. This, is, this burden is too heavy. And God simply reminds us that he is there with us in it. But the promise in that text that we need to hold on to is that God never takes us to a place where we have to sin. He will always provide a way out from underneath that sin. And so that's the context of where we get to in this. And in verse 14, he begins with flee from idolatry. Really, this is where Paul's been leading since chapter 8. Food sacrifice to idols. And I don't want to get too ahead of myself here because I'm going to clarify a whole bunch of things as we go. But this is, this is now the conclusion of that section. I don't want to say that Paul kind of was trying to get there but never did because these are the words of God written for us. And so obviously there was a lot of other things along that path to get to this point that needed to be spoken of. So let's read together. Uh, we're actually going to read 14 to the very end, but also 11 verses, uh, verse 1 as well. So it says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you were disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that which, uh, oh, pardon me, let's try that verse again. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I gave thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all in the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So there's, there's a lot in there, um, but we're going to focus here on a few things. Therefore, in light of all of this, right, verse 13, in light of everything that we've talked about, flee from idolatry. I, I don't want you to, to miss the seriousness of, of this word. John Chrysostom points this out. He says, Paul did not say simply depart, but flee. Flee from 
idolatry. Idolatry has deadly consequences, and Paul wants them to have nothing to do with idolatry. And if you read the Old Testament, right now I'm reading through Kings, and I'm I'm at the life of Solomon. And it starts out so good, but he starts to do things that God doesn't want. And, And all of a sudden, there's all these other wives of his that are from other nations, and they have other gods, and they start bringing their little idols in to the nation and and into his own home and idolatry worship begins. And and it's kind of the beginning of the end, right? Is there's a few good kings throughout, but not very many. This idolatry has deadly consequences for us. uh, and, And Paul wants them flee from that. Paul did not want them to make the same mistakes, but to learn from the mistakes of the Jewish people. Flee from idolatry. Then he says, I speak to sensible people, right? Right now, often he's very sarcastic in this book and and, and kind of, I don't want to say demeaning, but he takes their what they think is their worldly knowledge and he points out how little they actually know. But in this sense, he says, look, I speak as, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So, so now think about this analogy that he's going to give. And he calls them to say, look, this, this just makes good sense. He gives this imagery of communion, right? Like last week, we talked about the manna and the water coming out of the rock, right? Representation of Christ's body and blood. But now he moves on to the actual participation in these elements. Again, Christostom writes, uh, Paul calls it a cup of blessing because it in our hands, we so exalt him in our hymn, wondering, astonished at his unspeakable gift. We, we enter into this, this partnership with God. But it doesn't, it doesn't end there. Uh, while we're aligning ourselves to Christ in this, so are others, and so we're then connected within that context to them as well. And, and this is a really bizarre thing for me as I was kind of processing and thinking about all this, but remember, to Paul, and not just in Corinthians, this is, this is a theme throughout every one of his letters, is unity in the body of Christ is crucial, that we love each other, that we care for each other, that we unite together in mission and in purpose. So I want to take just a real quick rabbit trail here and say this. When the new restrictions came out, and there's implications for the churches, is the board kind of I sent out this, this email thread and, and we all kind of put our two cents in and, and talked about our concerns and, and what ideas we had. And, and no matter who it was, and, and everyone has a slightly different opinion, right? Everyone has a slightly different perspective on things and that's good. But no matter what they all said, I'm not trying to push my way. Whatever the board thinks is good at the end of this, we will all support. That is unbelievable. It, it's, it shouldn't be unbelievable. It should be the norm. But I'm, I was so blown away and reminded that we have a group of people here in this church that want to lead and want to lead well, and they don't just want to do it for their own glory, but they want to do what's best for the community. That's what Paul's writing to us here. We have, we have entered into this partnership with God and with each other. And in fact, in chapter 12, a very famous uh, portion of Scripture is about to come where it talks about the body in a very 
physical sense, right? Like talking about like the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears and all those things and how they all are meant to work together. So, and we'll, we'll get there. But here he starts this imagery and as Richard Pratt notes, he, he writes this beautifully. He says, in Paul's writings, one body is a technical phrase that refers to a mystical union. All believers are in spiritual union with Christ. And because of this, all believers share spiritual union with one another in him. It's not just about our own relationship with the Lord, but also how we relate to one another within that relationship. I cannot say how important that statement is. It's not. It's not only about us. And this is something that is often talked about or or people often advocate for is that my relationship with Jesus, it's a personal thing. And I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And again, while that's technically true, Paul's been arguing about all kinds of things here that are technically true, but that don't mean that they're helpful. And so here, the same is true, is if you are not in a covenant relationship with a church, why not? Because that's part of your spiritual union with Christ to be partnered one to another. Paul uses the reference in the Old Testament to remind them that the priests priests actually partake in the offering. He's showing the partnership. He's showing this is not just a new thing, but it already existed back then. It's just been brought into completion, into fullness now through the blood of Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, is Peter calls us a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. If you are interested in this idea of the priesthood and the connection between the priesthood and the church and how we are now representative priests of uh, Christ, uh, the Bible Project has just put out a few new podcasts. Uh, well, they're, they're fairly new in the last little while. And then some brand new video, uh, theme videos about that. And you can just go to their website and check it out. Very, very interesting stuff. So, Paul gets back to the point here. What, in verse 19, what do I imply then? So, right, so now he's the question. He's clarified a bunch of things, and he realizes that maybe people are a little bit confused. So, so what then do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Uh, and he clarifies right away, no. No, don't think that Paul's gone from one position to another. No, he's talking about something a little bit more intense than this. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Uh, Frank Thielman says this, False religions are not merely the result of human imagination and human energy, but generally have demonic power behind them. Not everything that seems supernatural is from God. So while Paul has already argued that, you know, that meat that's sacrificed to that grave, that that wooden image right there, that image is nothing. That has no, it's nothing. But something is going on. There is light against dark. There's good against evil. And there are demons that are fallen angels that are fighting so that we would not surrender to God, so that we would not become in a partnership with him. Leon Morris writes, Paul has shown from the usage of both Christians and Jews that to share food is to establish fellowship. Idol worshipers are entering into fellowship with demons, and Paul does not wish this to befall his Corinthian friends. So 
he's, he's saying the idol. Yes, the idol is nothing, but there's a representation there is that those people have entered into some kind of a partnership with these demons and, and you have entered into a partnership with Christ. And, and so he says it very plainly in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. As, as Frank Thielman said, not everything that seems supernatural is from God. We are called to be discerning and realize what is true and what is good. And so while Paul has been arguing various aspects of this, this you have the freedom to eat this, and he's going to say it again, and, and again, we'll clarify that in a moment. But he's also saying, open your eyes and see that there's actually other things going on here. There's other things that are going on. He then says this, and I want to focus here for a second. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, that's two kind of interesting questions. The second one, are we stronger than he? Well, obvious implication, no, we're not stronger than God. But should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Uh, For us, this can seem like a strange thing, but there's several places in the Old Testament where God says, I am a jealous God. And we sometimes get confused uh, about that. For us, for our understanding, the word jealousy is something like sinful envy. But for God, to be jealous is different. Because God is the creator and he alone is worthy of praise. And when we envy something else, we are ascribing what is due to God to that something else. It can be a tricky thing to get in our minds, but simply to put it this way, is God desires that we would worship him. Because he is the only thing worthy of worship. And so when we worship him, he's receiving glory and honor, which points other people towards him. And so it might seem like, man, this is self-seeking, that God is this egomaniac, but it's only an egomaniac if somebody is desiring things that they're not worthy of. God's worthy of all praise, and he's the only thing, the only entity, the only being worthy of praise. And so, again, when we worship something else, God is saying to us, that that thing is not worth it. And so his jealousy is provoked because he wants us to worship him and not that other thing, because only in worship of him do we find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And so it's actually a very good thing that God has provoked to jealousy, because then he wants us to come into relationship with him. It's actually grace and mercy. But so often we look at it and we go, but, but that's egomaniac. That's, that's just God's pride. But it's only because the way, that we, and we, the way in which we interpret all of those things is about us. If I desperately want approval from others, it's because I'm elevating self over something that is not. Something that, you know, uh, I think I'm more important than this person. Or I think this situation is more important than that situation. And so I'm ascribing greater glory to it when that's not true. But the simple reality is, is God is holy. When we define that in English a little better, he's, he's other. He's pure. He's completely separate from us. He's on a whole different category than we are. And so it's not wrong for God to be jealous. Donald Pryor sums up this whole section by saying this, and maybe I should have just said this and we could have just moved on. 
he says this, am I building up the body of Christ? Right? Again, chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul's been saying things like, yes, technically maybe this is true, but you're only thinking about yourself. You should be thinking about your brother, your sister, those within the church. You should be considering your neighbor more important than yourself. And I think the best way for us to answer anything when we're thinking, should I be doing this or is this a good decision, is I think we look at it and we say, is this going to build up the body of Christ or is this only for me? If it's only for me, we got to slow down and think a little harder. If it's for the body of Christ, if it's going to benefit, if it's going to build up and edify the church, that is the way we should be thinking. So Paul says in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, this should remind you back to chapter 6, verse 12, though it's been a long time since we were there. So let me just remind you in case you have forgotten. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now notice there's quotes again, right? All things are lawful. That is uh, something that Paul is quoting from either a popular slogan within the church at Corinth or something in the writings that they gave to him. And and so he quotes those things and then clarifies them. And in chapter 6, it was, all things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So first he's saying, look, just because you you can do it doesn't mean you should because it actually might start to control you. So so have control, have self-control over your own over your whole self, your whole body. And then here he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, but not all things build up either. So again, am I building up the body of Christ? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Again, right? There's certain verses near that just sum up everything that he's said. So now he talks about eating the meat, right? And, and it, it might seem contradictory to what has just happened, but there's a different scenario at play here. First, he dealt with how an idol is nothing, so technically you have the right to eat the meat. But you should care more about your immature brothers and sisters who don't understand these things, and so make sure that you don't cause them uh, to stumble, but make sure you support them and put their own growth ahead of your own. Then he talks about not allowing... Uh, sorry, about idolatry and not allowing idolatry into your heart and you cannot be a partner with both Christ and demons. And now he's saying the context of which you eat, but he's saying it, it's still about others. It's still about others. So first, eat whatever sold to you in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. This almost sounds like what Paul's saying here is what you don't know doesn't hurt you, which is not a very good logical idea. And I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Uh, Leon Morris explains it this way. He says, Jews were very scrupulous and made searching inquiries before they would eat meat. Paul's attitude was revolutionary. He took seriously the truth that an idol was nothing. This refusal asks questions, oh, sorry, this refusal to ask questions shows it did not matter to him whether a piece of meat had been offered to an idol or not. And so he was discouraging over scrupulousness. Or perhaps, as another commentary said it, these kinds of questions are theologically unnecessary. It's sometimes in our pursuit of things, we start to make problems where there aren't problems. And once we've made the problem, well, then we have to now deal with that. And Paul's saying, look, 
if that meat has been sacrificed to an idol, first of all, it's God's anyway. And so he has authority over this. So, so don't just go around trying to ask all these questions, get all these clarifications, but just, just eat what's put before you. When you go to your friend's house and they've invited you over and they throw something on the grill and they make it, don't make a big deal and ask all these questions. Just receive it with thanks. However, verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't do it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Why? Not because there's a problem with you, but because of the person Again, Paul's concern is, is them, that they'll be confused about what's happening and, and why are you now allowed to eat that in front of an idol. And so he says, don't do it. And for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, not your conscience, but his conscience. Donald Pryor says it this way, Paul's own foundational principle seems to be stated here. Why should my liberty be determined by another man's scruples? In other words, I do not make up my mind on things on the basis of what others think, but I am prepared to do what others believe to be right if it will ensure their edification is not impeded. Right? So again, even, even in this, right, Paul's going through all of these things, technically, 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 but at the end of the day, all of it is about the other person and the care that we have for them. Are we concerned that they understand who God is? Are we concerned that they understand what salvation is? And if we see them being visibly confused by something that we did or didn't do, we need to clarify those things. We need to fix those things. Because we should be far more concerned about them and, and as Paul's been arguing, bringing others into the kingdom of God, being all things to all people, than we do about our own self and what rights we should and shouldn't have. Paul comes to the end of the section and he says this, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Does it bring honor to God? What I'm about to do, the actions that I'm about to take, the, the thoughts that I think, the, you know, whatever it might be, is this going to bring honor and glory to God? Because Paul's saying, look, if you give thanks to something that is already God's and so you eat of it, then great, good. If you don't eat, then fine. But whatever you do, make sure you're doing it for the glory of God. Richard Pratt wrote, The chief end of human beings is the glory of God. His honor should be the principal concern of those who love him. Let me read that again because I think this is huge. The chief end of human beings is the glory of God. So God's honor should be the principal concern of those who love him. That's it. For all of us, that should be the principal concern. And so what does Paul say? He says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Jesus gave up his freedom, his honor. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, right? This is Philippians 2. That's the example that was given. And then Paul models his life after that, and he calls others to do the same. He's not being arrogant and saying, I have figured this out and you haven't. He's saying, follow me the way that I'm following Christ. Well, who's the one that gave the example? Well, Christ in the first place. So I want to finish with a couple of questions here. When we read sections like this and we start to explore our own hearts and our own minds and think, well, what am I thinking? 
What am I about to do? Do I have the right? Should I be allowed to? Those kind of things. Maybe we need to ask this. Do I care more about my preferences than I do about what's being presented? Am I concerned more about the style of worship music that's being played or the words that are being sung? Do I care more about what the preacher is wearing than the message that he is preaching? Do I care more about what day that we gather than who we are worshiping? Do I care uh, more about what translation of the Bible is being read from than remembering that these are the very words of God? Do I care more about how our people are choosing to respond to COVID than I do about their spiritual health? Do I care more about the fact that we can't gather together in person than that we can gather together in spirit? These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. And as we come to the conclusion of this section, I think, again, it's so timely, and it's probably always timely, but at this moment where we're struggling through, you know, what should we be doing as a church? What should we be allowed to be doing? What is the government telling us we can and can't do? And, and you know, all of those things is, yes, they're all valuable things we need to consider and reason through. But they haven't taken away our purpose. They haven't taken away our mission. And they haven't become ultimate things. They're just bumps in the road that we need to figure out how to journey through And if we get sidetracked and we start fighting over those things and we lose sight of, am I glorifying and honoring God by the way that I live and the way that I act? Am I building up the church with my comments, with my behaviors? Those are the questions that still need to be asked and primarily need to be asked. So for each of us, as we consider, you know, how how am I going to live through the next couple of weeks here with with new challenges, with new difficulties, well, let's ask, how can I honor God? And how can I build up the church? Some of those things may have changed a little bit in in how we do them. But how we do them is not as important. It's are we going to do them? Are we going to honor God? and Are we going to build one another up? That's what Paul argues here, and that is what we should take to heart. Let's pray. God, thank you you are awesome. You are worthy of all praise. You are the only thing worthy of adoration and worship. And so, God, we pray that as we, as we live in the world that you have placed us in, that you would remind us to stay focused on what our mission is, to declare Christ and to make him known. May we bring honor and glory to you with the way that we choose to live and the way we choose to respond to the circumstances that are around us. Help us to not get sucked into our preferences and what we think should happen, but help us to be concerned about your glory, your honor, and the building up of your church. God, I thank you for the leaders that you have put into positions here in Banff Park Church and their desire to honor you and their desire to unite together for what's for what is the good of the whole body. God, may we always have that focus, not on our own preferences, not on our own opinions, but on the building up of the church and the exaltation of you. So God, we thank you for uh, this message today, for what we have read, for what we have heard. Would you give us hearts and minds that reflect what Scripture has said to us this morning? And would you give us 
courage and boldness that we need? Would you give us opportunities to speak the words of truth and love and kindness to others that we meet, whether, whether in person or whether virtually? God, help us to declare Jesus Christ as King. Go with us this week. We love you. Amen. Well, again, do watch your, your emails and uh, social media accounts for the church on Facebook and Instagram. We will try and keep you up to date as best as we can, uh, as soon as we can, uh, in regards to what's going to happen this coming Sunday. So we look forward to seeing many of you throughout the week, uh, whether, again, in person or virtual. Have a wonderful week. Bye-bye.